Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale, I am a film critic and writer and today I am going to be talking to Nancy Schoenberger who is the author, along with her partner Sam Kashner, of the biography, the joint biography, Furious Love, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton and the Marriage of the Century. It's a wonderful read, um, it, it's uh, a book that I've been meaning to, uh, uh, to read for a long time and I was so pleased to talk to Nancy about the book. One word of warning, we did have some uh, technical issues because we were the weather situation, as anyone in Europe will know, is not particularly good. So uh, the internet was down and I had to do the interview via my phone. And so that decreases the audio quality somewhat. Um, and there was a slight time lapse as well. So um, we, we over talk each other a little bit in a way that I couldn't remove. Uh, uh, so I've tried to fix that as much as I can. But the conversation is so good that I'm sure those minor inconveniences will not impair your enjoyment in any way whatsoever. So if you enjoy the episode, please remember to like, review, uh, spread the word across the social media landscape. But before you do any of that, enjoy. And you will, I promise you, you will enjoy this conversation.
Well, first of all, I'm so delighted to hear that you're such a fan of Richard Burton because I am too, as is my spouse and sometime writing partner. We originally wanted to write a book about Richard, um, although, there, as you mentioned, mm. there's been a couple of biographies already. Uh, the biggest, maybe Melvin Bragg's, which included a lot of Richard's uh, writings in his diaries, um, which we do mm. upon, of course. But, uh, you know, when you go into the publishing world, well, no, can't you write about Burton and Taylor? That's what people wanted to read about. And so, well, why not? That was a, a fascinating part of cultural history, sort of the beginning of the paparazzi era. And uh, uh, they were, you know, they were so famous. Um, it was an extraordinary for them, 13 years, all told. So that's what we do. We expanded the book and came up with this idea of just, just writing about their romance and two marriages. Um, but Burton is just, I still consider him, you know, one of the one of the, if not the most compelling actors of the 20th century. His voice, people talk about his voice, that Welsh voice, uh, so well trained, is poetry. Um, in fact, mm. somebody, I think it was Emlyn Williams, described Burton as a boxing poet because mm. he had both qualities. He had this love of poetry, love of literature, love of writing. He really wanted to be a writer. He was always a little bit embarrassed about prancing around in tights on stage, but you know, he was a greatly gifted actor. So that, and that's where the money was certainly not in poetry, but anyway, um, for all those, you know, and he also wanted to, he was a rugby player. So he was an athletic fellow and a poetic fellow and a fellow of great passions. And, you know, the, all the, the combination of all of those things made him such a compelling actor. I wonder as well today, because you look back at those actors like Richard Burton, to some degree, Anthony Hopkins. Uh, Another Welsh. Yes, exactly. I mean, Patrick Stewart from Yorkshire, Ian McKellen from from uh, from Lancashire. And, and they're all these sort of regional, mainly working class voices. And uh, nowadays we have Benedict Cumberbatch. Yes, <laughs> I like him too, but that's um, a different different kettle of fish. <laughs> the actors you mentioned, they, they bring a kind of roughness, a kind of virility, a, a different kind of experience to their to their acting roles um, that you know is irresistible to a lot of people, including me. You know, Burton was that that was not his given name he was born richard jenkins the uh 12th no the 11th of 12 children and uh his, mm. his mother died when he was two but uh later in life when he was a young teenager he was taken in by a teacher and uh a bbc commentator and theatrical sort named philip burton and he took richard in as his ward and gave him his name hence he was richard burton instead of richard jenkins uh, but and he trained him he trained him to speak he had great material to work with but if you want to get a sense of what that was like for young richard jenkins see his first major role film role in emlyn williams the last days of dull wind which is a delightful movie and he's wonderful as a, a young country boy who wants to learn english um, I think it is set in Wales. So he's a young, he's, he is what he was, a young Welshman uh, mm. trying to learn English, trying to um, improve his voice. And so he goes out into the dales and, you know, he speaks at the top of his voice and yells and screams at the wind and all of that to strengthen and improve his voice and to learn English. And uh, that's what Richard Burton did. So with some actors, there's an eerie quality that the movies, their public lives, their their movies tap into the lives that they were living 
And I think it begins for Burton with the last days of Mm -hmm. and there's a very touching scene where he's trying to learn English and a very pretty upper class English woman comes into the shop where he's working and he tries to impress her with English, but he gets it all wrong. And he's so abashed. That's Burton (laughs) that that, you know, wanting to impress, wanting to master English, uh, attraction to pretty women, et cetera, et cetera. So. Um, start with the last, if those of you who don't know his career, start with the last days of Dolwyn, which was, by the way, in my view, remade as local hero decades later, the Burt Lancaster. Oh, is that, was that, is that an official? Uh... Notice, but it's the same story as a little, little small town in, invaded by a corporation who wants to, in Dolwyn, they want to flood the valley and they want to buy everybody out. And you'd think that the villagers would really protest that. But no, they say, OK, let's do it So until things turn around. But it's, it's the same. It's the same plot. We'll put it that way. And of course, I mean, one of the things that he had, as well as this wonderful voice, was this prodigious memory for, for poetry. And it must have been at this stage which in which he acquired that because it was Philip Burton's sort of influence. Well, even more amazing that he had that memory for so long, despite his prodigious drinking habits, uh, which usually, you know, memory's the first Mm. thing to go, but it didn't seem to impact his memory. Uh, I think he did start, he loved his fellow countryman, Dylan Thomas, and the poetry of Dylan Thomas, and he knew Dylan Thomas, and he made recordings of, um, and also appeared in uh, under Milkwood and filmed it with Elizabeth Taylor later on. The poetry came to him at an early age as an early love, and I think that stayed with him. And he memorized mm. them. So mm. maybe that helped to develop that extraordinary memory. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there are, pe- there are moments in your book where you talk about him reciting, like, sonnets backwards as a way of, oh, pre- you know, right. winning, winning That's right, I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten that. He did that at, where was it? Maybe it was at the old Vic when Winston Churchill was in the... Uh, in the audience, he wanted to impress it. But what an amazing uh, faculty he had. And so I guess part of that is his DNA. Who knows where it came from? But that served him well, obviously, as an actor, as a stage actor. And and the fact that the the alcohol didn't erase that is always amazing to me. He had he had incredible vitality and strength, and I think that came through with all of his abilities. And then, but then. You know, you reach a point where the alcohol wins and then things start to go. Absolutely. And the alcohol began quite early as well. It was like it was part of the culture of the village. His father uh, was was an alcoholic, maybe because of that culture as well. It was also something that he always kind of denied. It was sort of like, well, no, I'm a heavy drinker, but I'm not really an alcoholic. Well, you're exactly right. It was part of the culture. It was part of the small you know, Welsh mining town of Pontre de Fen. It was a sign. It was a mark of masculinity. You know, men drank, men who worked in the mines, which was certainly not an easy way to make a living. They came out and they went to the taverns and they drank. And this this was, uh, there's, there's even, I can't remember who first said it, but never trust a man who doesn't drink. That was sort of the mentality mm. that Burton grew up with. And it, it wasn't looked upon as a, um, you know, pathology back in the day in this small town and growing up uh, in the, you know, mid 20th century. So the fact that it was accepted part of culture, that it was a mark of masculinity, and that the, the uh, habit itself is so, um, you know, takes hold and, and becomes an addiction. 
Those are the three things that kept Richard drinking. And Elizabeth, too. Elizabeth, you know, she became addicted to prescription drugs, but she was also a very strong drinker, and she could hold it. Burton was amazed that she could drink most of his buddies under the table, and that was one of the many things he loved about her. <laughs> yeah, she had a prodigious... I mean, in she a way... Indeed. She was one of the first celebrities to go to the Betty Ford Clinic later on in life after she and Burton divorced. But Burton, um, Burton did become sober in different parts of his life. This is a... <laughs> I, I shouldn't be telling this out of t- this tale out of school because the Taylor people hated this little story. But when Richard would try to get sober during their marriage, she was known to say to him on some occasions, "Oh, Richard, you're so boring when you're sober." <laughs> so you know he didn't really have a lot of at first. He didn't really have a lot of support from Elizabeth to try to get sober. You really get the feeling that she, that they 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 facilitate each other's drinking. There's no They did. There's that no was way one of the many can... things that kept them together. I mean, in a way they had both met their match, Burton and Taylor, Taylor and Burton. Um and they, you know, they they performed in they made 11 films together from the ridiculous to the sublime, <laughs> in the whole range. <laughs> and um they did a few things on stage and then they after they divorced, they both appeared at Elizabeth's, um, you know, insistence in Noel Coward's Private Lives in a production that Elizabeth put on stage and, and sweet-talked Burton and gave him a lot of money to appear with her. Uh, so we can talk about that later. But um, there are so many things that draw do them together besides just animal passion and these two beautiful people. But um, alcohol was part of it. He, Burton said alcohol was the uh, rocket fuel that you know drove our marriage unfortunately that has a that has an early sell-by date you know that that can't last long <laughs> it t- yeah it tends to explode sometimes and blow the rocket up with it and the interesting thing about elizabeth taylor was she always loved danger and excitement and she loved mm. to provoke richard she said when i could get richard mad it's like adam bombs going off she loved that passion and so drink was a part of all that. Later on, they became known as the Battling Burtons. And a lot of this was Elizabeth wanting excitement, you know, wanting, mm-hmm. um, you know, wanting to see Richard really blow his top. So that was part of their marriage too. Roll a hand grenade into the party and see what happens. Exactly. Yes. Well, you know, Taylor is so interesting. She is one of these rare women who was born to rule. You've heard that expression, short women rule. And she could do it because she was a a beloved international movie star at the age of 12 when she was in um, National Velvet. And she was perfect for that because she could ride a horse and she was English. Mm-hmm. Those are the first two criteria that they wanted. Um, and she's charming in that. But that that made her a star at MGM. It gave her a lot of power and clout at MGM. And so by the age of 12, she ruled the roost. So who's going to who's gonna partner with her? You know, she's always going to, I mean, she's this incredible beauty and very alluring personality, but she's always going to rule the roost. She was just born to it and then, you know, um, achieved it, but also, you know, it was thrust upon her and she grabbed it. She grabbed the reins. She once told Louis B. Mayer off when she was a little girl when, uh, when Mayer, the head of MGM, insulted her mother. You know, her mother was kind of a stage mother back then. She said, don't talk to my mother that way. And he backed off because he knew this was a this was his prize, you know, product here, Elizabeth Taylor. And from the age of 12 to tell off a major studio head and get away with it, she ruled. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, people make fun of her that she had eight marriages to seven husbands. But who's going to stay? Who's going to keep up with her? So I we felt that with Burton, she met her match, someone who was as not as famous yet, but 
in England, in the, you know, in theatrical circles on stage, he was, you know, the, the heir to Olivier and Gilgood. And she considered him a greater actor than she was. And in some ways, I mean, certainly he's a theatrical actor. I actually agree with that assessment. But with, after they were married, she said, oh, please call me Mrs. Burton. I'm just a broad, but my husband is a great actor. She had very little vanity for a woman with kind of preternatural beauty and, you know, strong acting talent and amazing presence on screen. She didn't have any personal vanity. She was very smart, very shrewd. She could sum people up like that. And uh, when she met Richard, this was this was a guy who could stand up to her and equal her. And in her view, in some areas, out surpass her. So, you know, what's not to like? Mm. I, I mean, it's amazing that they're, they're coming from these two different places as well. There's a theatre meets Hollywood. He'd already gone to Hollywood, but he'd gone as a little bit of a rough diamond and he'd been a bit yes. obnoxious and his first yeah. films had not been... Well, Hollywood really didn't know what to do with them. I mean, I've watched all of his early films and, you know, I've watched them as a Burton completist rather than somebody, you know, they're, they're, they're not great, are they? No. My cousin um, Rachel, maybe. Yes, well, and he was that was his first Academy Award nomination. He was nominated seven mm. times, never won, although in my view... He should have won for playing George and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. That's just a searing performance. But anyway, uh, yes, they didn't know what to do with him. And in one of those, and his first attempt to conquer Hollywood, which didn't really get him anywhere, he he did run across Elizabeth Taylor at a at a party given by Gene Simmons. He was kind of struck by her beauty, but um, she you know she knew he his reputation as a womanizer preceded him, and she wasn't going to give into that. So she just snubbed him, and he was really he noticed that he was being snubbed. That was their very first mm. years later they would meet on the set of Cleopatra, and um, that also began with each of them you know <clears throat> trying to ignore or put down the other. Both were aware of their reputations. And, you know, she said, I'm not going to be another notch on his belt. So she resisted him at first. And he in insulted her. I won't say what he called her, but <laughs> it's in all the books. Miss blank. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he, uh, you know, he was he was interested in her at first. I and mean, he was struck by her beauty, but he was interested in her, in her at first because he thought, aha, if I, you know, connect with Taylor, I can start, I, I can get the big film career that I want that had eluded him so far. You're right, it eluded him so far. Uh, so ambition as well as sort of passion started that romance. And then it became like he's got hold of the tiger and he can't let go. It became impossible yeah. to do a, a life passion. And they're both married at this point. In fact, Taylor's been married several times. Burton's married, uh, has a sort of long-standing, not, not only a sort of a marriage in which there's a, there's a certain arrangement has been made, shall we say. Yes, that's right. So Burton was married to his first wife, Sybil Burton, another a girl from a, a, a Welsh girl. You know, we had interviewed Robert, the late Robert Hardy, when we were researching this book over 10 years ago. He was wonderful. And he loved Burton. And they were together mm. at Oxford as young men. And he fought, and they also were co-starred in the, the Spy Who Came In From The Cold. So he knew Richard from an early age. And he also knew Sybil Burton's. And she was a wonderful, wonderful woman. People just were drawn to her. And that was a good, solid marriage. But here's this, you know, the swaggering, handsome, passionate Welshman, Burton, who's being lauded on the stage. And women came his way, and he didn't... <laughs> He didn't step out of the way. They did have an arrangement that he could have his dalliances, <laughs> but he said, I'll never leave you. 
just just allow me my little <laughs> side things. And the side things included like Claire Bloom, you know, major, some very major uh, fascinating actresses. But they did have an arrangement. So Burton was married to Sybil Burton. And uh, of course, Elizabeth Taylor was married at that time to Eddie Fisher because she'd married, she had a horrible early marriage to um, Conrad Hilton, the heir to the hotel empire. And he was, he was just one of these little mm. rich, clueless brats who physically abused her. That last that marriage lasted. I think I think her mother had wanted her to marry money, so she did. But that didn't. And then she married. Um, she turned the opposite. You know, went in the opposite direction and married a man twenty years her senior, the actor Michael Wilding, wonderful, charming English actor. Who you know, it, looking at it from the outside, it looks like she married her father. He was closer in age mm. to her father. You know, a, um, a kind of elegant and charming Englishman, uh, Elizabeth's family were raised in England, although they were from Ohio. They were Americans. Or not Ohio. Was it Ohio, Kentucky? I don't remember now. But anyway, um, Kentucky, I think. So that, that marriage produced her two sons. And then um, it kind of, I always felt a little sorry for him because he captured this amazing prize, Elizabeth Taylor. But he'd been a, a promising and well-liked actor in England when he moved to Hollywood. You know, they didn't gravitate towards him. And he, the best he could do is he became a casting agent. Mm. So his career as an actor was over. <laughs> after he married Elizabeth Taylor. But they had two kids, and then that marriage lasted several years, broke up, and she fell in love with Mike Todd, this very dynamic um, theatrical impresario. Uh, and it's just a kind of a Bulgarian, you know, uh, powerful, you know, commanded a room, made a lot of money, uh, vulgar, you know, loved to swear, but Elizabeth loved to swear too. So they both also liked to fight. They both liked, you know, they had strong passions. And she thought, oh, this is, I finally have a real passionate love match. And of course, sadly, he died a mm. year into the marriage in a tragic, um, his, his plane crashed. I always thought it was ironic that his plane was named the Lucky Liz. But it wasn't very lucky for him. After his death, forgive me for recounting all this mar marital history, but we'll get to Burton in a second. She married uh, Mike Todd's best friend, Eddie Fisher. And so in a way, it was a marriage of these two people consoling each other on, on the um, on the death of their of Mike Todd. So, so that lasted a few years. And then um, and then Cleopatra. <laughs> She was she was the first actress to be paid a million dollars for a role cast as you know the famous Egyptian queen and um, they started um, producing they started making the film in England but then moved to Rome and they switched around directors and and actors they brought in Burton they bought Burton out of his contract he was starring on Broadway as King Arthur and Camelot and you know he was wonderful in that role. People just love that play. They loved him in it. And um, so he said, oh, here, my chance to be in a big movie with a big movie star. So he left Camelot and went, went to Rome and uh, they met. And as I said earlier, he wasn't going to, he wasn't, they, neither of them were going to be a notch on the other's belt. But lo and behold, they, they started an affair and it did, it became a deep abiding passion, or at least a passion that lasted all told, thirteen years. That's long in Hollywood Hollywood standards. Thirteen years. I don't Forgive know me for rambling on and on. I just there's so much history. No, no, it's not. It's not a rambling at all. It's uh, I love it. Yeah, them coming together in Cleopatra is. It's kind of. I mean, we've had Hollywood scandals before. You know, you've yes. had Ingrid Bergman and Rossellini. Right. And Rossellini. Um, that was a big scandal. But this is this is almost like mm -hmm. it brings in a new era. It's sort of like they're the kind of just. Okay, we're just going to get divorced and go and get married. That's you know where this is. This is a love affair, and we're off. Yes, they didn't do that. They didn't do that discreetly. And uh, that affair, that extramarital affairs on both on both parts, um, 
coincided with the rise of the paparazzi. So they followed them everywhere. And every little tidbit, every photograph they can get of the two of them would be covered on the front pages of magazines. So newspapers. So their little private affair became an international affair. And this was when, this is like 1961, 62. America was still a fairly puritanical country. And there was a lot of disapproval uh, about her breaking breaking up the marriage of Richard Burton. And, uh, you know, they were, they were, she was disapproved of when she broke up Eddie Fisher's marriage to Debbie Reynolds. So there was, but she survived that little bit, little mini scandal. But this was even bigger. And um, she was condemned on the floor of the Senate. The Vatican called her an, eroder, an erotic vagrant. You know, this took on <laughs> but you know what? She didn't care. She was in love with Richard and she wanted to be with Richard. And, you know, she she fought bigger battles. Well, this was the biggest battle she fought. So she just endured it. And Burton was amazed at her ability to withstand all of this public coverage, most of it ne- negative. Because he, he, what, what did he know? He was this, this boy from Wales. Um, but she had grown up. She was famous from the age of 12. She was used to having people, you know, thrust cameras in her face and take her picture. She was used to a lot of all that. In fact, Burton once said she had an amazing ability to remain private and public. She would just go out into a crowd of paparazzi or whatever, and she, like a veil came over her face and she would give them what they wanted, but it wasn't. she wasn't giving herself away. And Burton didn't have the, those skills or that experience. It was really hard on him. He was, you know what? He was a reader. He was an intellectual. He would, he, he traveled with a suitcase full of all of the plays of Shakespeare. That's who he was. He would rather be sitting in a, in a chair by a fire reading a book than being chased around by a paparazzi. That was a side of him that Elizabeth didn't really share, but she respected it. And uh, it was very hard on him. Um, but somehow I, I, he just private. <laughs> I, I love how he uh, she gets him a complete library of the Everyman classics. And that's yes. like his, his ultimate dream is to yes. have just a, as many books as possible. Yes, he was in heaven. So she she understood that side of him and she admired it because she was a very she was a very shrewd and smart woman, but she wasn't an intellectual, she wasn't a reader in that way, but she loved those qualities in um in Burton. In fact, there was a there was a time when Burton was um, I guess it was when he went back to Oxford, Doctor Faustus. Here he here he was in Oxford, and there was some talk that they would bring they would um, hire him to to you know to to be a teacher there, to be a professor, um, and he wanted to, that that was that was his dream. He would have loved to have done that, but what was mm. so what I found fascinating is that Elizabeth Taylor encouraged it, and she said, "Well, maybe what I will do is I'll offer a course on the plays of Tennessee Williams." Because she was in three of his plays, she was in *Cat on a Hot Tin mm. Roof*, *Suddenly Last Summer*, and then the the camp classic *Boom*, based on Tennessee Williams. The milk train doesn't stop here anymore. But wouldn't that have been great, fantastic to take a course on it, those plays with Elizabeth Taylor? Sadly, it didn't happen. But I always thought, wow, what an interesting chapter in their history that would have been. And we already had what their nightlife would look like because they'd already done it in Who's Afraid of a Virginia Woolf as yes. the academic couple, you know. That's, uh, right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, and again, as I mentioned before, this eerie parallel between their movies and their private life, their private lives together. That doesn't always happen, but sometimes it just comes, you don't know if they're unconsciously choosing that material, but of course they chose Virginia Woolf because it was a huge, huge success on on Broadway. 
and uh, the next step was the movie, who's going to play those parts? And they were delighted that, that they were offered the roles. And she herself chose Mike Nichols, a very young Mike Nichols, to be their director. He never directed a movie before. He, you know, From the uh, comedy duo uh, Nichols and May. Um, but he came on and directed them. And that for him was the beginning of a spectacular directing career. And he did, a, you know, it's, it's, it's a great movie. It's hard mm. to watch. It's really rough. But in that these the two couple, you know, the Martha and George, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, fight constantly, saying unbelievably cruel things to each other. But you see there's a passion and an enduring love between them. So there's tenderness amongst all of this betrayal and fighting. But this was at a time when they became known as the battling Burtons. You know, they at mostly at her instigation, they fought. And they and when mm. they would um, travel, for example, they always in England, they, in London, they'd always stayed at the Dorchester. They would frequently um, reserve the rooms above, below, and on either side of them, so they wouldn't disturb their neighbors. That that was that was how intense their fights were. But she just loved it, and it didn't. That's not what broke them up. That's not what mm. that was something that she enjoyed, and uh, he was just in, so enthralled to her. I guess he endured it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's that sort of fiery intensity. I mean, the, the title of, of the book, Furious Love, there's that 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 sense of fury is is right in there. Talking about their films, um, it always surprises me because you know, Burton especially has this reputation as a, a a wasted talent, an actor who never when you look down his list of films, it always surprises me how many great films there are. That yeah. for a waste for a wasted talent, he didn't waste much of it. Ah, that's right. Uh, uh, certainly more than a handful of great films and a lot of fun films to watch and a lot of bad films, but that's true of any actor's career. Um, people love to talk about the wasted talent, but uh, he he worked up until the end of his life. Ironically, mm. his last movie was 1984, the adaptation of the George Orwell novel, and that was the year he died, 1984. And you can see... Uh, he's a small role playing the sort of the grand inquisitor who tortures, um, I've forgotten the character's name, was it Wilson? But he... Uh, Winston Smith. Yeah. Winston, yes. He he tortures him with his questioning and confuses him. And and it's classic Burton. Here he is at 58 old because of his lifelong drinking, white haired, mm. that face which was always haunted, even more haunted, yet still sort of very attractive and compelling and that voice is still there. And that look on his face behind his eyes of kind of regret and world weariness was perfect for the role. And this is our last image we have of him making that film. But he and he gave a wonderful, wonderful performance. He worked to the end of his life. And uh, as you said, in many terrific films, there was a lot of disappointment and some anger towards him when he left the theater for film, for film stardom. Uh, but early on, Olivier had sent him um, a telegram to Burton saying, oh, come on, Richard, make up your mind. Do you want to be a great theater actor or a movie star? And Burton shot back both. But mm. and he did achieve mm. both. But there was a lot of, there was a certain amount of anger that he left the stage and all that promises a really great Shakespearean actor to be in. And he ended up being an action hero. He ended up being in Where Eagles Dare and Rommel and, you know, various uh, things that, didn't so much make use of his voice as much as it made use of his ability as a, you know, as an action figure. 
So here you take this great Shakespearean trained actor and you turn him into an action figure. But that's Hollywood, right? That's where the money was. So there was a certain point in her his marriage to Elizabeth where he began making more money than she did. And that was a sort mm-hmm. of turning point, too. And, and I mean, the films they make together, I, I mean, I have a lot of time for even the disasters, but but the great ones, Taming of the Shrew is wonderful. Um, I too. You know, it uh, uh, I mean, so- I... I, I VIPs, I have a lot of time for. I mean, I know it's, it, but it's very of its time. You very much feel yes. like you're you're understanding something about the time that you just don't, you've, you've never really understood before. Yeah, in a way, you're time traveling um, mm. to watch those films. I'm glad you like them. I like The Sandpiper, this, mm. which people made fun of and it got terrible reviews. It, it did pretty good box office, but if you, looking back at it, it was a very smart, moving film about an illicit love affair uh, between a married man and a woman, mm. an unmarried mother um, with a past, and uh, set in what was in kind of like a, 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 a pre-hippie enclave in Big Sur. That had, and then of course Burton, Burton plays tortured figures so well, and he's a, um, a <laughs> reverend he- head of a boys' school uh, who leaves his wife for Elizabeth Taylor, and it's torn up by guilt. As I said, he he gives he does guilt and torment very, very well, and, and he does it beautifully in The Sandpiper. So if you don't know that movie, that movie is really, um, to your audience, that movie is worth another look at. The same as the VIPs. I think there are a lot of great mo- moments in that movie as well. Again, Burton suffers magnificently trying to hold on to his, uh, as a wealthy tycoon, trying to hold on to his trophy wife, who's about to leave him for another man. But you're right. The the costumes, mm-hmm. look how easy and and um, glamorous air travel was back in the '60s. So it's so <laughs> interesting to see all of that. And they're playing versions of themselves as they as they did in so many of their movies. Boom, uh, the adaptation of of Williams Tennessee Williams The Milk Train doesn't stop, stop here anymore. <laughs> it's such a weird movie. It's John Waters' favorite movie, and it's just pure camp from beginning to end. They're totally miscast as the lead characters, and they were they were drinking throughout the whole movie. So at one point, in there there was an accident in the trailer, and all of this you know, they were drinking Bloody Marys. That was to drink of choice because you get the vitamins from the tomato juice. So they thought that was a healthy alternative. <laughs> and at one point, there was a mishap in their trailer, and. Uh, a whole thing of Bloody Mary spilled out. And so this red substance was pouring out of their tr- people. Thought, oh, my God, they they killed each other. But <laughs> um, <laughs> so there was a lot of goings on while they made Boom. And it's just a crazy, silly, campy film. But it's fun. It's fun to watch them. And and they're always making even the the. the- Campy films, as you say, they're always making them with, with high quality people. I mean, Joseph Losey directs yes. that. He, he directs yes. Burton again in the, the assassination of Leon Trotsky, which, you know, it's it, it's it's I'm not going to make a case for it being a great film. But, you know, you've got Alain Delon in that film. You've got a whole, you know, the stuff going on that's just fascinating. Well, Elizabeth always commanded the best and she got the best. And to her credit, mm. she wanted to work with Joseph Losey, who is an avant-garde director, uh, not really in her, you know, not really who she was, but she wanted, she didn't want to just make Hollywood movies. She wanted to expand her abilities and be in more art, quote unquote, arty or artistic films. And they didn't always work out. Um, she did the secret ceremony, mm. Losey, which didn't get very good reviews and boom. And, uh, not among her best movies, but still fascinating. And it's to her credit that she wanted to expand what she could do 
and work with edgier, more avant-garde directors than she had. Hmm. I mean, I was going to say she's loyal to directors. Um, she was responsible in part for bringing Joe Mankiewicz in to finish directing Cleopatra. And he he sort of took mm. over the production, rewrote the script, he did the whole thing on amphetamines because it was such a huge production. And so it has a kind of amphetamine grandiosity to it. Uh, but she she had worked with him and suddenly last summer uh, and she was she's wonderful and compelling in that movie. So she she knew she knew quality. She knew who the and George Stevens, who directed her in Giant, um, she wanted to work with him again, and she did. And I forgot which film that was, but she was very loyal to the directors who, who she could flourish with. Oh, well, I think it was his very last. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Film, wasn't he? He was uh, maybe her and Frank Sinatra. Um, I forget the title, though. But John Huston is another one. Sorry. <laughs> okay. It's okay. I'll just, I'll just drop a clip of my voice saying the title here at this, at this point in the conversation. The only game in town. John Huston, she, she, uh, both of them worked separately with John Huston. There's Night of the Iguana and Reflections in the Golden Eye. Yes, that's right. Night of the Iguana. Another Tennessee Williams play, you know, adapted into film with John Huston. That's a wonderful movie. And again, he plays a defrocked mm. priest. He's very good at playing defrocked priests, men who are, you know, brilliant, uh, deep, poetic, but wracked with guilt. So he's that's that really was a specialty of Burton's. And I think it reflected a lot of who he was. And Elizabeth came along to the set. It was set in um, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, and it was there just sort of you know, enjoying being, not working, but being with, with Richard, with a really wonderful cast. So that was a very happy time of their life, of their life together. Um, mm. They ended up buying a place in Puerto Vallarta and responsible in part for turning this little sleepy Mexican village into a tourist attraction, which it is now. So that was really a good part in their life. They loved just touring the little Mexican villages and Richard Burton, who, you know, very good writer, wrote a piece for one of the mag ladies magazines about being in a little village in Mexico when a traveling circus came through and uh, <laughs> there was a knife thrower and the empresario asked for volunteers <laughs> to come up and, you know, have knife a knife thrown at her. So she did. Elizabeth said, no, no, I want to do it. She went up there and Burton watched while this... <laughs> This little local traveling circus knife thrower threw knives at his at his wife, missing her face by inches. But that she didn't flinch. 
this is what I mean. Elizabeth was drawn to adventure and drawn to risk and was excited by it. So, of course, I can see her doing that. Of course, she would do that. There's a wonderful story that one of her um, associates told us when we embarked on this book many years ago, that later on in life, long after Burton had gone, and uh, she was in her 70s. She'd been, um, she, she'd always had some health problems. She had uh, had injured her back as a young girl, probably in a horse riding accident. She's always on painkillers anyway. So she was in a wheelchair at the time, but she was in Hawaii and she wanted to, she wanted to swim with the sharks. So she goes to the, you know, she arranges it. She gets to the, um, you know, the, the dropping off point. She's lifted out of her wheelchair and put into a shark's ca- a, a cage to go down and be amongst all these sharks in her shark cage. And the divers said, oh, by the way, Miss Taylor, remove all your jewelry because they're so glittery and shiny. They're just going to attract the sharks and make them go go mad. And she said to them, oh, I thought that was the point. <laughs> so that's her. She just was drawn to danger. She had to have things yeah. flashing around her. She, was, she, was, she grew up that way. Yeah, in the midst of the he- maelstrom. And it's almost like there's a Midas touch quality to them that in terms of both everything they touch turns to some form of gold but it also destroys things that they want they want yes. that mexican village because it's because it's quiet and then when they go back it's been you know they're famous there as well yes exactly um at one point they lived on their yacht they bought a a, a grand yacht i think it had 14 rooms and they had a crew of 9 they called it the Calisma, named after their children. Um, and they spent at least two years just, you know, yachting around the Mediterranean from one fancy port to another. And uh, we we determined that at that point in their lives, they were too famous to live on land. They had to just <laughs> they had to just stay on that their little protective cocoon of that of that yacht. So, um, right, in a way, their their story is a story of, of what it means to get everything you want in life. And mm, huge amounts mm. of it. Yes, for a while it was glamorous, glorious, the wealth, the attention, the artistic opportunities, the passion, the love. It was all there. But again, um, be careful what you wish for, because you know, mm. you can live under that kind of scrutiny constantly. It was very hard on Burton, as I said earlier, um, harder on him than it was on her. And then of course the thing that helped fuel their passion and their, you know, their fights and their 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 love affair was the alcohol. And of course, you know. That help that might get you started to begin with, but it takes its toll, and it really took its toll, particularly on Burton. Elizabeth was able to get sober and, uh, you know, kick her addiction to prescription painkillers. You know, she did all that through the Betty Ford Clinic, and she stayed sober. But Burton tried, and would after that's what defining what destroyed their marriage. He became just so wounded and um, rendered uh, he really could could barely work. When he appeared mm. in the Klansman with Lee Marvin, uh, the uh, makeup man came in one one morning. The director said, "Would well, you go ahead and take a look at Burton's makeup?" And the makeup man was, "Oh yeah, he he for a man who in the film who plays someone at the brink of death, he looks great." <laughs> and the makeup man said, "Yes, but I haven't touched him yet. I haven't put any makeup on him at all." So that was how he looked in the Klansman. He, uh, you know, the trembling. Interestingly, it was that trembling that first softened Elizabeth Taylor's heart. Because on the set of Cleopatra, she, you know, I'm not going to be a notch in his belt, but the next day, practically on the set, she walked in and he, his hands were trembling because he was hungover. And that endeared mm. him to her because she saw how vulnerable he was and how human he was. And I guess it was maybe the siren call of two 
heavy drinkers, who knows? But um, that it first endeared her to him. And then at the end of their their marriage, their first marriage, uh, she just they couldn't live together. They couldn't they couldn't make it work with all that. I get I get the feeling as well that as it goes towards the end of their romance, he, he wasn't somebody who necessarily when he did get sober and um First of all, it did, you know, th- he wasn't in a relationship where that was ever going to be successful. And secondly, he didn't seem to necessarily enjoy being sober with her. You know, it was like, you know, it was, it, he didn't enjoy parties when he was sober. He didn't enjoy, you know, he it, it was just, a, a, yeah, he would much rather have just been drinking all that time. Yes, I, it was a big part of their of their marriage. It was one of the things that kept them together. Burton, for his credit, for a guy who was known as a womanizer earlier in his life, was faithful to her um, for all those years, and uh, I think it was. It became also the only way he could live with that level of scrutiny. And I think mm. he was a very private, a guy who loved his privacy. And yet, she always had to have an entourage. She she would, would never be. She couldn't be alone. She grew up, you know, as a young mm. actress, as a child actress, surrounded by makeup people and studio people and publicists, blah blah blah. So that's how she lived her life. She usually had an entourage of eight to 10 people wherever she went. And that wasn't something that Burton could do easily. And I think alcohol made it easier for him to endure that aspect of their married life. I was going to say that is the fact that his father was an alcoholic and it was part of the culture he grew up in. So it took a while before it taunted him that this is really a problem. Towards the end as well, he, uh, uh, after he, um, he, he did stray, you know, he did break his, his vows, so to speak. On the set of, of Bluemen and uh, Bluebeard, there were some suspicions of his dalliance with Alain Delon's wife at the time. Anyway, but that was towards the end of, that was very much towards the very end of their first marriage, which lasted 10 years. And Absolutely. Then divorced, and then they remarried in Botswana and that second, read that remarriage lasted a year and they were together mm. for two years before they married. So, Burton says, um, our grand love affair lasted 13 years, including mm. both marriages mm. and the two years before they married. It's an unlucky number. Yeah, I, yes, yeah. Lucky Liz as well, you know, I mean. Like all lucky these, Liz. Uh, oh, my yeah. God. There, there, there is a sense as you come towards the end of the book, a, a t- period of history has passed by as well, that that things have happened which, you know, could only have happened in that period. And and we, we're not, we might have Brangelina, we might have other sort of similar relationships that fill the newspapers and the gossip magazines, but nothing quite as grand as this has has happened since. You're absolutely right. It was very much of its time, and it was a confluence of the rise of paparazzi culture, the um, puritanism of America, and I guess England to some degree, you know, hitting this, the fact of, of extramarital affairs and grand passion and something has to give. So all, you know, um, the lack of other distractions. Now there's so many things that can occupy your time. Just, you know, all the the media we have and all the different electronic devices we have that we don't give that much, maybe for the good of it, we don't give that much attention to what the celebrities are doing. But in its day, you know, they were it. They, they, they had symbolic mm. power. They had emotional power. Um, they had cultural power. And uh, you're right, I, I can't see. I mean, before that, there was the, um, you know, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, that scandal, that was mm. that, that, you know, but back then, what did you have? You had newspapers. That's about it. You had newsreels, mm. <laughs> but that was it. Now there's so many ways to distract yourself that we don't give that kind of importance 
to um, any one celebrity so much. Maybe the Kardashians. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, they're moving. And throughout all of that, incredible cultural upheavals that all happened at the same time. They produced some magnificent works of art. I mean, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is their best film and one of the best films of that era. And they are just relentless mm. and searing and so honest and unforgettable. It, it actually hurts my heart that Burton didn't get an Academy Award for that because he was so moving and the, just the whole range of the emotions that he expresses uh, and there's a kind of fluidity and um, depth to that portrayal that just breaks your heart. And for that not to have been recognized with the highest honor of Hollywood, it's just, but I think there was always a little bit of resistance against Richard in Hollywood, even though he made a lot of money for them in his more action-oriented films. A little bit of resistance. One, he stole their darling. He mm. married their darling child star, Elizabeth Taylor, and uh, took her to England and got her in some of these movies that they wouldn't have approved of, like the Joseph Losey movies. So he was always seen a little bit as an interloper in Hollywood, where she was their darling, you know, from the age of 12. Mm. And he didn't like living there as well. That was sort of like, he was right. not, he, he wasn't someone who'd establish himself there. That's right. He was much happier in Europe, happier uh, in England and happier in Wales when he was you know, visiting. And he, when he married his third, third wife, wait, his fourth wife, Sally Hay, they moved to um, Switzerland and he had, a, he had a very peaceful, peaceful life there, but it wasn't very long because he then died of a cerebral brain hemorrhage at the age of 58. And Elizabeth Taylor, a, was, a couple asked, of... Elizabeth Taylor was asked not to attend his funeral in Switzerland, Céligny, because um, she, she was afraid it would turn the funeral into a paparazzi, you know, mayhem. So she didn't, but she went later privately to Burton's grave. And there was this feeling that this this had really been the love of her life. And I think it was. I mean, she wasn't with Todd, Mike Todd long enough. That marriage lasted only a year before his untimely death. But with Burton, they went through every possible scenario, range of emotion, you know, depth of attachment. I mean, that that was for mm-hmm. her, who tended to dominate any scene she was in. She had met her equal. Mm, absolutely, yes, yes. And uh, before we before we finish, I'd love to, there. Are, I, I'm so aware there are so many uh, films that we haven't mentioned, and so many people and personalities who light up your book who we haven't mentioned. Montgomery Clift, we haven't mentioned. We haven't mentioned Equus, which was a wonderful sort of return to form yes. for, for Burton in the stage, and one of my favorite films. That that would be one of. One of the films I would argue he deserved an Oscar for as well. Yes, that's um, right. Yes. And I, I also think there are some films that are kind of maybe well worth reassessing. I, I really love uh, Villain and Medusa Touch, for instance. I think they're both, they're very gener- generic and all the rest of it, but they're really good at what they do. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what's your favorite Burton? What's your favorite Liz Taylor uh, film? They can be. They don't have to be in both. They don't have to be a pairing necessarily. Well, at the top of that list would be, as I mentioned, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with both of them. But mm. a- apart from that, I think Elizabeth Taylor is wonderful in Suddenly Last Summer. That's mm. a mm. strange play. It was a one-act play, you know, uh, turned into a film, adapted for film by Gore Vidal, no less. And... Um, uh, we actually spoke to him years ago before his untimely, well, I guess it wasn't an untimely death. He was well on in years. But, um, and he said, here's this movie about homosexuality, cannibalism, um, frontal lobotomies. And and it was a huge success in, you know, mid-century America. Most Americans have no idea what any of those things even are. <laughs> but 
it was just so compelling. <laughs> Taylor, of course. Um, Catherine Hepburn plays, plays this, this kind of evil matriarch. Montgomery Cliff plays the uh, doctor that um, she's hired to give Elizabeth Taylor a lobotomy to take out the memory of her, um, of having witnessed the cannibalization of her beloved son. <laughs> it's just morbid gothic mm-hmm. stuff. And yet, because of the star power, Mc- um, Joe Mankiewicz directed, it was a huge success. And uh, Gore Vidal, you know, 40 years later was laughing about that. My God, how did America embrace this movie? I don't think it would have gotten anywhere in today's <laughs> today's world with as, as fractious as we are now. But um, but she's wonderful in that. I'm trying to think of some other films of hers that I really loved. Um, I think she's really good in The Last Time I Saw Paris. Mm. Mm. So uh, her her great films tend to be earlier in her career. And so for Burton, Virginia Woolf, of course, and uh, I think he's wonderful in that small part in 1984. I'm not remembering some of my favorites of his films because I love him in The, the Last Days of Dolwyn, his first feature film with a, with a major role. Right. He's just so touching in that and mm. um, so compelling. What are some of your favorites of Burton's single films without her? Certainly those uh, that you've mentioned. I think one of his, I really, really love uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, because I think that's um, that yes. encapsulates what the, the guilt and the the hauntedness. Yes. And it's it's like, it's like Richard Burton doing a James Bond movie. It's exactly what you get, you know. It's he was considered like... to be James Bond at some point. But in a way, you're right, he already did it. He did it in, in Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Yes, he's... He's chilling in that movie. He's so full of self-loathing, you know, um, guilt. Mm. Uh, he, it's a powerful performance. And it's also, it's nice to see Robert Hardy in that film as well. Mm. Those two played off each other mm. very well. So, yeah, he's wonderful in that. And I think he's wonderful in The, the Sandpipers. Um, again, mm. it's, a, it's a guilt-ridden defrock, not a defrock priest, but a, um, you know, a, a, um, a married Episcopal headmaster who has this illicit affair. He's wonderful in that. I think he's great in The Night of the Iguana. That's where he plays the defrocked priest with a lot of self-awareness. Absolutely, yes. And again, he's just, you just can't take your eyes off him. And that's with a fabulous cast with Deborah Carr and um, Ava Gardner. That's the John Huston-directed film. But he just shines Mm. in that because he's unforgettable. Absolutely. He's probably one of his more... Uh, uncontrolled performances as well. You know, he he doesn't have that that grip that he usually has on. He, I mean, he relinquishes it purposely in terms of the character. Yes, and that's something that um, that's very appropriate for a Tennessee Williams mm. theatrical production. He he loves those kinds of char- doomed tragic characters who will go the whole distance emotionally and Burton does that absolutely absolutely I have one final question for you Nancy Mm -hmm. uh, which is a question I ask um, all my guests which is to to give me and to give my listeners a a recommended film book a book which uh, which you've read and maybe has inspired you or a book that that you you just enjoy (laughs) well the first biography that I read and loved that made me think gee this is a genre I would like to try my hand at was uh, Gerald C. Clarke's biography of Truman Capote you know that's Mm. going that's at least 30 years old but it's just a a master of the form it's it's so insightful great blend of reportage and insight and storytelling so that's a wonderful book (laughs) there's so many it's hard to choose um i've been doing a lot of work about tennessee williams his his name has cropped up a lot today right 
my most recent book, which came out in April, is about seven actors, actresses um, who played Blanche Dubois, his perhaps his most famous character from Streetcar Named Desire. So I've been reading a yes. lot about um, Tennessee Williams. And there's a, a two-part biography. I love the first part written by Lyle Leverich. It's called uh, Tom, the Unknown Tennessee Williams. I'm just reading from the cover. That's a wonderful book. I'm, I'm looking at my, I'm looking at my, oh, also um, Donald Spado's book about Tennessee Williams called The Kindness of Strangers. I'm looking at my, my what's on my, just on my table is also um, fun, to, <laughs> fun to read. So, okay, what else do I have? Oh, here's a fun book. <laughs> Can you see it? Nibbles, Nibbles no. and Me. <laughs> this was written by Elizabeth uh, when she was 14 and published by MGM, or they arranged to have it published. And it's about her lifelong love of animals. It's about her chipmunk called Nibbles. And she wrote it and she illustrated <laughs> it. And you can even, here she is 14. Can you see that? She already had this preternatural yeah. adult face, which is why she they didn't really like her as a child yeah. actress at Universal where she started because she didn't have that little cute little girl's face like Shirley Temple. She had the face of a grown woman. So, and that was a little unsettling for people. Mm. But this book is really fun. Um, this is my... This is my new called Blanche, anyway, about, you know, seven actors. Excellent. So anyway, what, does, that answer, does that begin to answer your question? Yeah, Nibbles at Me is, is, has gone top to my, the top of my reading list now. <laughs> For the title You'll have alone. trouble finding it. You'll have trouble finding it. I love John Huston's memoir. I can't think of the name of it now, but that- An open book. An open, yes, that's a wonderful memoir. And- my first biography that I wrote, you know, as a solo author was called Dangerous Muse, The Life and Times of Lady Caroline Blackwood. And John Houston lived in Ireland for a while and knew this illustrious Guinness family that Caroline Blackwood had stemmed from. And so that's why I read that book. But I found the whole thing just just fascinating. I also I also Excellent. loved other recommendations. I loved Patti Smith's first memoir, Just Kids. That's a fabulous book. Um, as is the co-authored book by Keith Richards. What the hell is the name of it? Uh, My Life, something like that. That's a really fun, interesting book. Yeah. What I loved yeah. about... Yeah. Um, that, I'm running long, but what I one of the things I loved about Patty Smith's book was it opens when she's she tells the story of being a little girl, like five or six, and her mother taking her to Central Park, and she sees this beautiful creature on the on the lake, just incredibly beautiful with a long white neck and beautiful feathers, and says, Mommy, what is that? And her mother said, oh, oh, dear, that's a swan. And she, at that moment, she said, there's a word for that kind of beauty. So the word and the image fused in her mind. And that was the beginning of her life as a poet. So I thought that was just a wonderful telling wow. of when those things come together, the image and the word come together. Uh, that is beautiful. Yeah, that is beautiful. I've, that's uh, My daughter has been recommending that book to me for a long time. So I've got it's, to, it's worth I've got read, to absolutely. Uh, put it on my to yeah, very much so. Well, listen, Nancy, thank you so much for talking to me, and thanks so much for the book and and the books because you've got. I know you've written lots of books, and this is only um, only one that that uh, is hopefully going is going to start me off on a a, a trail of of uh, including your latest. Um, thank you. But thanks so much for talking to me. Oh, John, my pleasure. I enjoyed this quite a bit. It's so nice to meet another Excellent. person who, who loves Richard Burton and gets what was so special about him. Thank you. 
so that was my conversation with Nancy uh, uh, about her book Furious Love Elizabeth Taylor Richard Burton and the Marriage of the Century which is available wherever uh, good books are sold including internet sites I believe but it's a, a brilliant home really really great story packed with anecdotes and it really makes you think I, I think Richard Burton is a figure who deserves to be rediscovered Elizabeth Taylor I think her position in the pantheon is is much assured but um, we need to keep going back to these these stars who very much invented what cinema is today but are in danger of being swept away by such things as streaming where you don't really have any historical depth to the films on offer a little thing that i've decided to do in these sort of post interview sections is just talk maybe a little bit about films i've seen recently no attempt to review stuff which is being released anywhere or anything like that purely uh, my own viewing habits um so i watched a couple well first of all i watched the fall of the house of usher which is the uh tv show the mike flanagan adaptation of edgar Allan poe and recently i'd also re-watched roger corman's fall of the house of usher in um uh, starring vincent Price. Uh, which is an old favourite of mine. I love that film, the, the colours, the, the set design, the uh, costumes, Vincent Price. It's just all over a superb film. Uh, I've not been a huge fan of Mike Flanagan in the past, I must say. At least I didn't like the very first of his series, The Haunting of Hill House. I'm a huge Shirley Jackson fan, and so I found the contemporary setting. I just kind of, it's kind of a little bit like War of the Worlds. I enjoyed the original so much, I think, why don't you just do a period version? rather than an updating. I didn't see uh, The Haunting of Bly House, although I will rectify that. I did see Midnight Mass, which I thought was a big improvement of, on The Haunting of Hill House. And Fall of the House of Usher is my favourite so far um, of the ones that I've seen. I thought it was absolutely excellent. A really interesting postmodern take on Edgar Allan Poe with lots of wonderful references and a brilliant topicality and sly humour it was the funniest version that I've seen it was really I mean somebody described it recently on the internet as spooky succession and I think that is a a worthwhile description uh, it was really good uh, I, I the performances um, throughout Bruce Greenwood Carla uh, Gugino I think her name is pronounced um, Mary McDonald they, they were all great across the board um, I really like uh, who else was in it that I, that I uh, particularly uh, Willa Fitzgerald who plays a young Madeline Usher I think she's a, a, a cracking actress really really played her part well uh, the other things that I've seen recently well on the other scale uh, Evil Dead Rise the Lee Cronin uh, next chapter if you like there's been already been a remake of Evil Dead and now this is another another one this this did not impress me I'm afraid everything looked like a movie everything looked like a movie whereas Evil Dead you know wasn't exactly Ken Loach social realism there was a sort of grunginess to it which made you feel like somehow this film had been that, that the actors had been hurt in the making of this film <laughs> you know there was some sense of danger to it there was a, even the plasticine monsters by that time you were so into it it made sense uh, Evil Dead Rise has the technical acuity and it has the gloss but it's that very gloss which to me takes away from the horror all the actors all the characters look like actors playing characters um the the 
dysfunctional family trope. There are just so many tropes in this that, uh, you know, everybody has a, a problem that will come out in the horror somehow. It's it, it just found I just found it tedious. Um, and, you know, the gross out moments as well uh, just just felt like pushing uh, button push, pushing to me. On the plus side, last night I did watch John Cassavetes, a film I'd never seen before, actually. I've seen a lot of Cassavetes, but this was one that I had uh, just had slipped past me. Uh, Gloria, a film from 1980, often regarded as his most commercial film. This stars Gina Rowlands as a uh, as a woman who's basically works for the mob in some capacity. You don't really find this out during the film, and it's never really specified, but the... the um, from her her curious set of skills i would argue, i would say sort of a button woman a sort of hit hit woman uh, of some kind uh, she plays the title role and she is um she is a young boy is placed in her charge after a mafia uh shooting massacres his family and despite her profession despite the danger that it puts her in and despite her best inclinations of survival um she somehow decides to to take this boy under her wing it is an a remarkable film it looks amazing new york in the summer of 1979 looks fantastic and um gina roland's performance is is pure character driven it's wonderful it's full of little gestures you know the 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 way she smokes a cigarette the way her eyes scan a street for danger the way she stands on a back foot with her you know on the on the back heel uh toes tilting up you know there's this sort of come and get me stance it's it's just phenomenal um the places themselves the bars the hotels the corridors and staircases of crumbling apartment buildings magnificently filmed magnificently directed music by bill conti um has this luscious sort of depth to it everything in this film is, is, it has a depth to it you know even just you know people getting up in the morning eight o'clock in the morning in brooklyn you know you see things you know i think it's something that when you watch recent films you kind of feel you're missing in that no film ever feels like it's being shot somewhere real with real people and this you know if the camera gets on the bus you feel like you're on a bus with normal people if the if we enter a railway station you feel you're going past people as as uh, you know it just feels real it feels like this is a story that's happening in the world and it's a generic story it's a story which is in some senses kind of quite um you know formulaic in the way it 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 you know, a hit woman with a heart of gold, if you like. Um, and the violence bursts in so well and so surprisingly. And I think it's a real feminist film as well in that it is about a woman with no real maternal instincts. Um, uh, no, you know, who who is a powerful figure of violence. And, and every time you think she might... might be in danger or in some way you would expect a, a kind of behavior that would be like a damsel in distress she she doesn't just match the men she beats them to the ground she beats them into a pulp her attitude you know she cries at one of her uh the hitman hitmen that she's going after she shouts at him you know come you know she's taunting him come and try it you'll love it he she says to him you know as she brandishes brandishes a gun you know you'll love it come and have a go you'll love it 
It's amazing. Oh, such a good film. Five stars, definitely in my book. Um, so if you haven't seen that, pop it on. It's it's a it's a cracker. I think it's showing. Um, I think it might be showing on Mubi uh, if you if you uh, have Mubi. I'm not sure uh, what location it would be, but it's, I think it might be. It might be showing there. Um, I watched it on DVD anyway, so well worth well worth picking up if you haven't seen it. And if you have seen it a long time ago, it's well worth watching again. Okay, so those are the films that I've watched recently. Oh, there's one final one that's worth a me- mention. I was over in uh, Britain uh, and I saw um, the Jimmy Savile docudrama, I guess you would call it, with Steve Coogan in the title role, a sort of role that in a me- in a way he he kind of had been rehearsing since the 1980s because he was the voice of Jimmy Savile uh, for Spitting Image, the satirical British TV comedy puppet show. Um, Of course, this is not in any way a comedy. This is a drama. Uh, This is a a very dark drama, a very dark subject matter of an abusive uh, man who basically got away with it for the whole of his life. Um, There is a sense of punishment, I think, in in the idea that he he sort of dies a fairly sad and lonely man who, who... who's seen his career sort of slide away from him but then is buried as some sort of national treasure some sort of great um wonderful guy so um it is a it's a tough watch but it's really well done and steve coogan is is fantastic as you would imagine him to be the one piece of criticism i might have for coogan's performance and this is a decision a choice that i'm sure he was well aware of and conscious of is that he sometimes didn't quite have what i would have thought was um it seems like a small point but i'll say it anyway there's a sort of wide-eyed astonished sort of innocence to Savile's persona uh, which he would then use to dominate and hypnotize a room and uh, I think I think Coogan plays him more as a sort of you know his eyes are more hooded and he's more uh, there's almost like you you always see the darkness in him whereas I, I think there's a little bit of retrospection about that that there was a there were moments where he did appear to be sort of innocent even though now we look at him as one of the most grotesque monsters that britain has produced and indeed you know i wouldn't necessarily i wouldn't dispute that that idea um but that that uh, well worth seeing it's a four part documentary it's available on iplayer if you're living in uh the uk uh, i'm not sure how you can see it internationally i was in england so i got the opportunity to watch it um but uh but yeah very well worth seeing gloria i would put at the top of the list fall of the house of usher and uh the reckoning amazing and evil dead rises you know approach uh with caution but not because it's scary because it's shite okay that's all from me uh next week we uh will be talking to pamela i will be talking to pamela hutchinson about the red shoes and hopefully you will join me until then take care
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.